It's such a blessing. I mean, we were blessed last night with the uh, Reformation celebration. We had many reformers show up, even some gangster reformers show up. And it was a great time of fellowship. We do think back and remember those men and women who went before us. But we're gathered to worship Christ. And what better way to point back to the reformers even than look at another verse in the book of Romans. A book that's been so important in the history of the church. Because it talks so much about the gospel. It says so much about what the gospel is to us. What it means. It defines the gospel. It proclaims the gospel. It sanctifies us by reminding us of the gospel. So we're back in the book of Romans um, this morning. Verse 5 of chapter 1. We're going to look at the purpose of the gospel of God. The purpose. I want to read the whole paragraph because remember when Paul writes. he, He writes these long sentences. One through seven is a paragraph. I want to always read it to you and put the verse in context that we're looking at. Let's start in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking this morning at the purpose of the gospel of God. And as the typical American and modern person, we think that the purpose is always for us. We think that the ultimate purpose of everything in our world today often terminates on us. All things are done for our pleasure. All things are done to give us a blessed life. You even see whole churches starting that preach nothing other than the gospel of self, the gospel of how I'm supposed to be blessed, how I'm supposed to live a perfect, great, and wonderful life, and God's going to give me everything I desire. Now, as we dig into Romans, you're going to see that that is not the purpose of the gospel of God. Yes, we receive blessings, and Paul will cover that. But what is the ultimate purpose of the gospel? And even if we back up one step, how is God accomplishing things before we get to the ultimate purpose? And Paul's not going to leave us in the dark. He he wants to tell us right away in this book where he's aiming, what his purpose in ministry is. He doesn't want anybody to be confused. He's not going to wait till the end of the book. He's going to tell us right away in verse 5 here. He's already been talking about the gospel, but he's going to say how that relates to his ministry. And by the time we get to the end of the book, he's going to recap it all and tell us once again. He has a very important message. And it's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And that means something for us when we hear it. And so Paul's going to tell us, here's my purpose. The purpose that Christ gave me to go out and tell the whole world. So just to sort of recap where we've been, because this is one long sentence. And we need to think about the context before we even look at verse 5. Let's go back and start in verse 1. Remember there, Paul tells us about himself. He's the author of the book of Romans. Really, the whole paragraph is about Paul and his ministry. But in the beginning, he just says, here's who I am. Here's who I am. He says uh, something about his master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. He is a slave of Christ. Not just a servant, not just a bondservant. The better translation here is slave. He's bound to Christ. Christ bought him, and now he's going to serve Christ the rest of his days. He also told us about his office. He's an apostle. He's an apostle, and he's been appointed by Christ to take a message out. He's an an emissary, a messenger, who will take the official proclamation out and take it to the world. He also told us about his purpose. This is all in uh, verse 1. Now, he doesn't get to the ultimate purpose, but he says, look, my purpose is the gospel. And then he starts explaining the gospel. And now he'll come back in verse 5 and reconnect it all together. But he said, look, my purpose is to present a Christ-centered gospel. That's his purpose. And he said in verse 2 that he is 
going to talk about this gospel. It's the promise of the coming gospel in the Old Testament. It's nothing new. Paul didn't invent this. We don't invent the gospel. We don't have a right to change the gospel. It's been in the scriptures from the beginning. It continues to be in the scriptures, Old Testament and new. He told us something else about the Christ-centered gospel. Paul said that there's a person at the heart of the gospel. That's in verses 3 and 4. He went into who the gospel is about. It's not, first of all, about us. We don't even come into the picture until God creates us in this world. It's about Christ. It's not primarily about you and me. It's about Christ. It's what he did. What did we do on the cross for ourselves? How did we live a perfect life? We didn't. We never could. How did we raise ourselves from the dead? We didn't do that. The gospel starts and ends with Jesus Christ. So he tells us about the person of Christ. He's the heart of the gospel. So Paul just briefly summarizes his humanity. He's from the line of David according to the flesh. Christ is truly human. He's fully human. He didn't just appear to be human. He didn't appear to look like us. He was truly human. He suffered as a human on the cross and died on the cross. Secondly, Paul talks about his divinity in verse 4. And he told us there that his divinity was proven to the world at his resurrection. He's always been divine, but not everybody recognized that. You see over and over in the gospel accounts where they denied that. The apostles often dealt with false teaching where they denied that Christ was the Son of God. So the apostles had to correct that. And so Paul says right away, look, he's proven to be the Son of God at his resurrection. If people deny it at that point, it's not because they don't see and hear the truth. It's simply because of their own sin. Because he was proven to be the Son of God. Who can raise themselves from the dead? Only God can do that. Only the Son of God can do that. And so now he comes back to this idea of the gospel. Today in verse 5, he tells us the purpose of the gospel of God. He's gone into who Jesus is. And now he's coming back around to sum it all up and apply it to his own ministry. Verses 6 and 7 deal more with the church in Rome and who they are, which Lord willing we'll look at next week. But here in one succinct verse, he says, Here's my purpose, and it relates to the gospel of God. Now, before I even give you how he lays out the three aspects, I just want to look at the first part of the verse with you. Look at the beginning, how he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Through whom. He's, he's talking about the end of verse 4. Who is this person? Jesus Christ our Lord. It's through him that Paul has received something. He's received grace. He's received apostleship. Now, why does he have this word we? Because so far, it's only been Paul writing. Is he surrounded by a group of apostles? Is he surrounded by a group of prophets? Who is the we? Today, we have what's called the royal we, don't we? Queen Elizabeth will say we, and she just means herself. Sometimes we'll, have, uh, we'll read about the editorial we. Somebody's writing a scholarly work, and they'll say, we believe such and such, and we found such and such to be true. That's called the editorial we, the first person plural, but it's just applied to the one editor. We don't typically use the we that Paul is talking about here. It's called the the epistolary we, or we could say the letter writing we. I do occasionally run into people who talk like this. I had an old friend who used to say, we are coming over to see you. So we'd get the house cleaned up, think the whole family's coming over, you know, get something to eat. And it would just be the one guy showing up by himself. And my wife would say, where's the we? And he kept on saying this over the years that I knew this guy. And it was so confusing. And finally we realized, oh, he's just talking about himself. He says we, but he's always referring to him and him alone. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. It it was a common uh, way that ancient letter writers would write. Uh, They would say we, but he's, he's generally referring to himself and the office that he is representing. The office of apostleship. So it's through Christ that Paul receives certain gifts. What are the gifts? Look at the passage, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. These are two separate things split by the word and. And he's talking about grace here in the sense of conversion. God has given him grace. God has saved him. God has changed him. We can certainly apply this to ourselves. We know often 
uh, how we were converted. Sometimes it's at a very young age and it's through our parents. Uh, Sometimes it's later and we know the definitive moment when our life was changed by God and we believed in Christ. Well, Paul had a moment like that. Uh, He was one who rebelled against God. He rebelled against Christ and yet he was converted and he's saying, it's through Christ that I received this grace. What is grace? Well, grace, a simple definition is it's undeserved favor when we really deserve the opposite. Grace isn't just undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor when we deserve the opposite. We deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. We deserve eternity in hell. And Christ brought us grace. Christ saved us by his grace alone. You'll remember that Paul was a great sinner. A great sinner like all of us. He would go after other people to try and hurt them, to harm them, to persecute them. He was chasing down Christians. He hated them. He even talks in 1 Timothy about how he hated Christians and he desired and loved to persecute them. So he worked for the high priest. He worked for the Sanhedrin. He would go find them, bring them back, bring them to trial, and enjoy seeing them stoned to death. But he's saying God changed him. God brought about a change by grace in him so that he could believe in Christ, so that he would follow Christ. And he's saying it's through Christ that we receive that. It's not through anybody else. It's not just saying, I believe in God, like so many people say today. It's not through, I'm a good person. He says it's through God's grace, through Christ. And then he tells us about the next gift that he was given. Apostleship. Apostleship. He says that he received the spiritual office of an apostle. We've already seen how he mentioned this in verse 1. He said, I'm called as an apostle. And you recall that to be an apostle, you had to meet three qualifications. You can't just show up tomorrow and say you're an apostle. If you do, we're going to sit down and we're going to have some biblical counseling. We're going to have a bit of a counseling session. Because there's three clear qualifications in Scripture. You need to have witness the resurrected Christ. That's in Acts 1. It's clear there. You need to have seen the actual resurrected Christ in his glorified body. You also, to be an apostle, need to have been appointed by Christ himself. In other words, he tells his apostles that they are apostles. He appoints them to go out and be apostles. You see this throughout Luke and and the time that Jesus called his apostles. You see also 1 Corinthians 9 and also chapter 15, where he's appointing Paul as an apostle. And then the third qualification we looked at, that we had to confirm that message by miraculous signs. Not by causing somebody's leg length to be a quarter of an inch longer. You actually had to do miraculous healings that were instantaneous. You had to do a miracles that everyone would know that is by God's power. Now, apostles were for the early church. We're not going to meet anybody that meets these qualifications today. We see in Ephesians 2.20, speaking of the early church, where Paul writes, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There's a foundation that's already been laid. It's in the past. Even for Paul, he's saying it's already been built by these apostles. And you don't lay the foundation twice. Christ, of course, the chief cornerstone. But the apostles and the prophets in the early church laid that foundation. The truth, the doctrine, what the church is supposed to believe and do. Let's go now to Acts chapter 26. I want to show you where this idea of Paul being converted... And called to be an apostle, it happened together. It happened together. Now, it's not every day that you get saved and know your spiritual gifting. But Paul knew it that very day. Because Jesus had a task for him. Because he needed to get started right away on his training. I believe that Jesus told him that right away. So he could start with that training. So we're looking at Acts 26 and verse 12. Paul's going to Damascus. He's going to look for Christians. He's got letters in his hands that would require the governing authorities to hand over Christians, the synagogue especially, to hand over Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. So in Acts 26, 12, he says, While so engaged, so this is Paul telling his own story to a king. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king... This is the guy he's talking to, the king Agrippa. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground. See, that's what happens. When you see the risen Lord, you fall to the ground. You know, you don't run up and just put your hand around him and say, hey, buddy, how's it going? You literally fall to the ground out of fear. Whether it's an unbeliever like here or the Apostle John in Revelation 1, when he sees the revealed Christ and all the glory that surrounds him. He says, all the people with me saw this light. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interestingly, who's he persecuting? The church. So Christ is associating the church directly with himself because it's his body. And I said, who are you, Lord? So you already recognize whoever this is. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's a Lord. He's a master. He is the Lord. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think God has changed his heart at this point. And here's Jesus telling him what he needs to get up and do. Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. Not only to the things which you have seen, which he just saw the risen Christ, but also to the things which I will appear to you. So Jesus is going to appear to him and train him directly. We don't even know what happened in those conversations. We just know that there's more appearances to come. And verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people, because Paul is going to be persecuted by his own people now, and from the Gentiles, they'll hate him for his message, to whom I am sending you. What's he appointing Paul to do? To go to the Gentiles. He's directly saying, go to the Gentiles. To open their eyes. He's not just going to go and, and sort of be their friend. He's going to go and proclaim the gospel. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Wow. I felt a desire to go into ministry. Frank felt a desire to go into ministry. We might use the word called. We didn't have Jesus Christ show up and appoint us to do something. It was not even in question. He had a clear appointment by the Lord Jesus Christ to go to a people and proclaim the truth. He would be the first apostle to go to the Gentiles. The main apostle to go to the Gentile nations. Now Peter, of course, uh, preached to men like Cornelius. But Paul's not just going to stay in Judea. He's going to leave that area and take the gospel with him. So that's telling us a bit about Paul's appointment. What's he going to do with that? Christ has given him salvation. He's given him an apostleship. What's Paul going to do with that? Well, he's certainly not just going to sit around. A lot of times as Christians today, we get saved and we think, well, we have to figure out everything in the Bible. Then we'll go evangelize. Paul was trained, no doubt, trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. But there comes a time when we need to just tell others about Jesus. And there came a time for Paul when the training had been enough and he goes out and he begins to proclaim the gospel. We're not apostles. We're not going to get trained personally by the Lord Jesus. But there's going to come a time in your life, and it probably already is there if you've been a Christian very long, where you need to tell others about Christ. You need to tell others and not think, I'm going to have the Bible mastered and then I'll go tell everybody. Guess what? You'll never have the Bible mastered. You live it out and you tell others about it. And you read and study and you live it out and you tell others about it. And it's a continuous cycle. We're not apostles. We don't have training from the Lord Jesus Christ directly. But we certainly can go ahead and tell people the good news. So let's look at Paul's purpose of doing that thing. He's going to tell people the gospel the good news. And then he lists for us, as he often does in his verses here, three aspects. He gives us a list, three aspects that help us understand the purpose of the gospel. It's not enough for Paul just to say, the good news, the good news, the good news, the good news, the good news. No, he defines it. Theology is often about just defining your terms. There are many false churches that preach the good news, they say. But when you dig in when you have them define their terms. It's not the good news of the Bible. We need to be clear on what the good news is. And so, first of all, he tells us the appointed result. There's a result that is expected from Paul proclaiming the good news. 
That's the first aspect that he says. There's a reason Jesus gave him the gift of apostleship. This is his mission in life. And it says here in the verse, for literally for obedience of faith. Different translations say different things here. They're trying to interpret this verse. Literally, for obedience of faith. So the big question becomes, what is this? What is this little phrase? Because it's pretty important. That's the purpose. The word for here indicates purpose. Paul's been given the gift of apostleship for the purpose of obedience of faith. Much ink has been spilled on this little phrase. Many commentators have weighed in on it throughout the centuries. Let's just look at the two words. First of all, the word faith. What is faith? Faith is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's trusting in Him with all that you are. Your heart, your body, your mind and soul. It's admitting you can't save yourself. That you're a sinner and you turn to Him alone for salvation. That's faith. Okay, so what is obedience? Aren't these two things opposite, Paul? Isn't obedience and faith out here opposite ends of the spectrum? Well, obedience means the state of being in compliance. Somebody who obeys is somebody who listens And follows those instructions. So, okay, Paul, how do we do this thing that you're saying you were telling everybody about? It's the gospel, obedience of faith? Well, there's two different views on what this phrase means. So I'm going to go through those. We're going to dig into a little Bible study on this passage. Because you need to know, if you ever pick up a commentary, a study Bible, you're going to see usually one of these two views. What does it mean to have the obedience of faith? If Paul's going to go out and proclaim it, we need to know what it is. One view says it's the obedience that the gospel calls us to in the very beginning. Initial saving faith. In other words, obedience and faith are being used interchangeably here. This is a big view. Many people believe that. Faith and obedience are used interchangeably. Two sides of the same coin, just like faith and repentance. And so they would say, look, Paul uses obedience many times in the book of Romans to mean this very thing. When you initially hear the gospel, there's an expectation that God is telling us you must believe. You must obey the command, the call that goes out. Believe upon my son. Let's go through Romans and see if this is the case. Romans chapter 6, turn there with me, and verse 17. Is Paul talking about here obedience that comes with initial saving faith? Immediately you obey and have faith, and together that is our response to the gospel. Well, in Romans 6, 17, he says here, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that's an unbeliever, you became obedient from the heart. To that form of teaching which you were committed. So there he's talking about a conversion. He's saying you were a slave of sin. He's going to go on to say you're now a slave of of God if you're in Christ. But he uses this word obedience. Clearly talking about the change that happened. Let's go to Romans chapter 10 verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. He's talking about the Jews who do not believe in Christ. They did not subject themselves or submit themselves. The idea here is one of obedience to the righteousness of God. He says, look, the Jews heard the gospel. They heard about the Messiah. And they did not, those who did not believe, they did not submit themselves. They did not obey the calling that went out about the righteousness of God. Now go to verse 16 of chapter 10. He's trying to explain why this happened. And he says, however... They did not all heed, or we could say obey. Heed is an older English term for obey. They did not obey the good news. What's the good news? It's the gospel. Then he quotes from the Old Testament. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And then he talks about faith in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So he's putting together these two concepts, obedience and faith. Now he's not saying, he's not saying you must obey the law to be saved. He will clearly differentiate that in the book of Romans. He's saying there's a call that goes out by the preacher. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And our response to that is to obey that command that goes out. We obey it, which is the same thing as having faith. Chapter 11, verse 30. Again, talking about the Jews. For just as you, now he's addressing the Gentile readers. For just as you once were disobedient to God. When we're in sin, we're disobedient. We're running from God. We don't want to listen to God. We hate his word. If we enjoy his word, we certainly don't like, as an unbeliever, the parts about it that convict us. And he said, you once were disobedient, you Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. God has passed over them for a time, and he's bringing in the Gentiles. So again, this terminology of obedience, disobedience, verse 31. So these also now have been disobedient, talking about the Jews of Paul's day, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. So again, he's connecting this idea of mercy and obedience, and disobedience is going to lead to wrath and punishment. Let's get forward to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 18. We're just looking at the verses here where Paul ties obedience to the idea of saving faith, initial faith. Not obedience to the law. Obedience to the command, the, the call that goes out of the gospel. Uh, fifteen eighteen. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in, what does he say? The obedience of the Gentiles. By word and deed. And then he goes on to talk about the power and signs and wonders that he performed. And even that were seen in Jerusalem and round about. And so again, he's tying this idea of the obedience of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are in disobedience. They're running from the Lord. They're disobeying God. And Paul's going to go out and proclaim Christ. And in that proclamation, God is calling people to believe. He's commanding people to believe. This shouldn't surprise us. We see it in Jesus' ministry. What are the first words in the Gospel of Mark by Jesus? If you have a red letter Bible, what are the first words in the Gospel of Mark that are read? Repent and believe. Those are commands. He's not saying, you know, it'd really be nice if you people heard me and believed in me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is the Lord. He is saying, repent and believe. Come to me, he says. There are different Gospel calls throughout the gospel accounts. But in that case, the first words out of his mouth, repent and believe. And Luke 9, 23, what does Jesus say? If anyone wishes to come after me, if you desire to come after Christ, you should deny yourself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, in the imperative there, he's not saying it might be a good idea. Maybe if you would like to come, he's saying, come after me. Of course, you're going to receive blessings on the other end. But ultimately, and first of all, it's a call from God himself to come. Come. We're his creation. He can command of us as he wishes. He wants good for his creation. And he's commanding his creation to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel makes demands on us. Even in that passage I just read to you, take up your cross. There's this demand that we must die to ourselves. To be a Christian, even from the first moment you're saved, means that you must die to yourself. Now that comes from the power of Christ. That comes from God's power that is given. Obviously, he's got to open the heart or you can't even believe and obey. But here we see even Jesus saying, take up your cross, follow me. When Paul goes to Athens, the, the wisest philosophers of the day, he goes out to the place where they're all gathered. And he says in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. He's been talking about God. He's been talking about the one true God that's created all things. And he says, there's been a time of ignorance that you did not know that God. But now you do, because Paul just told them. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Or you might say, must repent. All people everywhere. It's not just a wise idea that Paul came up with. No, this is God saying, he's declaring it. Everyone should repent. Now we know not everyone will. We know not everyone is predestined to believe. We know that people love their sin. And we'll get into that later in Romans 1. But he is declaring, he is commanding people to repent. We also see this in Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He's talking about the Jews. 
And he's saying that the Jews are persecuting the church. They're persecuting Christians at the time. These are unbelieving Jews. And he says that the Lord is coming back. And there's going to be a time, he says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That right there is pretty frightening already. Jesus is coming back. He's coming with his angels. There's going to be flaming fire. He's coming back to judge, dealing out retribution. To who? To those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that same word, obey. Who are those who don't obey the gospel? Those who do not obey God will be the Gentiles who don't even know who God is. And then people who've heard the gospel. And they don't obey it. They don't come to Christ like they've been called to do. This would be the Jews at that time. Today it expands beyond the Jewish people. You've got all kinds of people today hearing the gospel and doing nothing in response. They hear the truth that Christ is our Savior and they don't come and accept Him, believe in Him, trust in Him alone as Savior. And it says God's wrath is going to come upon them. So we have much evidence that that view is a right view. That to obey the gospel means to have faith. It's just a call to come and believe in the Savior. But there's a second view out there. Uh, The second view, as Paul is saying here, obedience of faith is obedience that comes after faith. It flows out of faith. The obedience to Christ that comes after being justified. So the moment you're saved, you've been regenerated, of course. You've believed upon Christ. You've trusted in Him. you turned from your sin. And now you're called to a life of obedience. You take up the cross, yes, but you also follow Him. You live day by day for His glory. You become more and more like Christ. Yes, there's ups and downs and backslidings and all kinds of, of sinful struggles. But ultimately, you're growing in your holiness. It's called sanctification. So the second view here is saying, look, Paul's talking about our obedience that comes after we are saved. As we grow in the Lord, as we mature, we obey him more and more. And we do see Paul saying something about this. Go forward to the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16 and verse 19. He says to the Romans who are already Christians for the report of your obedience. Has reached to all. Everybody knows how much you love the Lord and want to obey Him as a Christian, he says. You Romans are famous because you obey Jesus Christ's word. And he continues, Your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Continuing to be holy, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now skip down to verse 26. But now, he's talking about Jesus Christ who's come and has been revealed. Verse 26, but now he's been manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, the Old Testament, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. Leading to what? Obedience of faith. Exact same phrase that we see mentioned in chapter 1. He starts the book talking about obedience of faith. He ends the book of Romans talking about obedience of faith. And here he's saying, look, now you're obeying. Now you're obeying, verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. So which is it, pastor? You just said there's two views and they're both supported in Romans. Well, normally we need to be very careful and not just accept all the views and try to cram them into a verse. But I do think here, Paul is not specifying one direction or the other. He's saying, look, this whole book is generally going to be about the gospel. And one way we can talk about the gospel is to say obedience of faith. What does that mean, Paul? Well, it means when you're first saved, you are obeying the gospel because you came to Christ like he called you to do. And God, of course, gives us the ability to do that. But also afterwards, he's going to get into all this in Romans 5 and 6. Afterwards, now you're not a slave of sin anymore. You can obey him and grow in your Christian life. So I take Paul as speaking of both of these. Both of these things because he doesn't specify in the context. He's saying, here's my propositional statement of generally what I'm going to cover. He'll get more specific when we get down to verses 16 and 17. 
So I think it's both. Here's, here's Douglas Moo saying in his commentary, Paul saw his task as calling men and women to submit to the lordship of Christ. A submission that began with conversion, but which has to continue in a deepening lifelong commitment. This obedience to Christ, he says, as Lord is always closely related to faith, both as an initial decisive step of faith and as a continuing faith relationship with Christ. It's both. It's both. We are to obey when we hear the gospel and we're to come to him and have faith and turn from our sin and we are to continue to obey him. You take up your cross and you continue to follow him. This is exactly what uh, John says, 1 John 3.23. This is his commandment. This is God's commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We're commanded to believe. He's the son. Our creator, God the father, has a son, Jesus Christ. An eternal son. And he's come to the earth. He's taken on flesh. And we're to believe in him as savior because that's God's plan for salvation. But John goes on. We're to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. We believe in Christ and we continue to obey him all the way through and love one another as a main command in the New Testament. A person obeys the call to come the instant they have faith and a believer continues to obey Christ throughout the rest of their lives. Now this is a huge contrast to a lot of bad theology. I'll even say heretical theology out there that says this. And maybe you've heard this, so you need to be aware if you haven't. Maybe you've heard it in the past. It's the idea that when you come to Christ, you don't need to obey Him. It's the idea that you make Jesus your Savior, but you don't have to make Him your Lord. That language is bad anyway. We don't make Him either, right? He already is Savior and Lord. We don't make Him that. But that's the language that's out there. Sometimes you'll hear believers say, You know, he was my savior for 20 years. Then I finally made him my Lord. Then I made him Lord of my heart. In other words, there's there's no call to repent. There's no call to obey Jesus as the slave to the Lord relationship. People say, look, you don't have to do that. It's really easy to believe. It's called easy believism. Easy to believe. All you need to do is say that Jesus existed and that he died on the cross for your sins. Or maybe they'll have a little thing that you repeat. Or maybe there's four steps and you just repeat and believe those. But there's no talk of taking up your cross. There's no talk of denying yourself. This theology has been very prevalent um, in America, in Texas, and some people that came out of Dallas Theological Seminary some decades ago. We have to watch for this idea that we're not to obey our Lord. He's our Savior and our Lord the moment we're saved. We don't get to take part of him. Jesus, I just want your Savior part, but leave your Lord part in heaven. It doesn't work like that. He's both. He's always both. But when we follow him, when we trust in him alone, when we are saved, he is both to us personally. Now, what does this mean in our lives? What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, Charles Spurgeon preached on this and he said, look, it means that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you turn away from your self-righteousness and confession of guilt. You turn away from this constant self-righteousness. And you give him all the guilt of your sin. He takes it. You repent. And you disciple under the Lord Jesus. He said, my burden is light. The Pharisees were legalists. And you could never do enough to please the Pharisees. They were always laying the law on people. Always laying it on thick. But Jesus has a very light yoke. Because not only does he command us to do something, he gives us the power to do it. He gives us the strength, the grace, the mercy. He's right there with us. He's in us. And then we, of course, need to profess his name by baptism if we've not been baptized yet. What happens to people if they disobey the gospel? Paul said, this is important. I'm going to tell you about it in the beginning of Romans. What happens to people if they refuse to obey? Well, two things happen. Initially, and in this life, the person hardens their heart. Have you ever noticed some of the hardest people to actually 
tell the gospel to and, and to evangelize are those who think they're already saved, but you know, you know by what they say, you know by how they live that they're not, but they think they are because they've refused the true gospel and hardened their heart. And it's some of the most difficult people to evangelize. Ultimately, if people don't obey the gospel, they will go into condemnation. Condemnation eternally. So it's not wrong to use the word obey when it comes to the gospel. We want to make clear that it's not obedience to the law that saves you. It's not works, works, works. No, no. It's trust in Christ. It's faith in Christ. It's turning from sin. Or as Paul says, it's obedience of faith. Now we spent a long time on that point just to let you know how important it is. Everything else flows pretty easy. We understand the next two aspects well. But we've got to get crystal clear in our mind what the gospel is and the demands that the gospel makes of us. When you're telling somebody about Jesus, please speak in a way that is a proclamation. When Paul stood up to preach, he didn't invite opinions. He didn't invite all these different thoughts from the people in the crowd. He said, here's the gospel. And God used it to save people. Sometimes you'll be in a discussion and people are going to interrupt your, your teaching on the gospel. And that's fine. You don't want to be rude. But at the same time, you want to get the points of the gospel across. And I have to ask before we even look at these other two. Have you obeyed the gospel? In a room this size, are you someone who has obeyed the gospel? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you still trying to work for it? Are you still trying to earn your way? Are you still thinking, you know, if I can be good, my parents tell me I'm good, then maybe I'll be good enough for God. Are you thinking that being part of a church will get you into heaven? And forgetting about the fact that we're to love Jesus Christ with all of our heart and turn from our sins. Have you obeyed the gospel? God says, come to him. Come to my son. He is my beloved son. He is the savior. Have you come to him? Have you responded in obedience of faith? The second aspect. So we looked at the appointed result. We now are looking at the called people. So he's Become an apostle. He's been appointed to go do something. And notice it is a result. Meaning he's looking and saying, here's what I expect from my preaching. I expect them to obey initially and continually through faith in Christ. It's the result that he already knows God's going to do. God's going to work it out. But where is he going? Among all the Gentiles. Among all the Gentiles. I'm going to go do this for the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. In the middle of the Gentiles. That's the area of the world that Paul was going to proclaim the obedience of faith. He's not just going to stay with his people in Israel. He's not just going to stay in his own family unit, in his own people. He's going to take it out. He's been appointed to do that, and he's going to take it to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are anyone that's not born in the nation Israel. Anyone who's not from the descendants of Abraham. Anyone not part of the nation of Israel. Now he says this even more in verse 14. Look at chapter 1 verse 14. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. He's under an obligation. God has obliged him, told him, commanded him to take the gospel to the Greeks and the barbarians. The, the Greeks were the wise and the intelligent, they thought. And the barbarians were everybody else that was a Gentile. Both to the wise and the foolish. That's his obligation. Paul's going out. And he says in Ephesians 3.8, he says, To me, I'm the very least of all saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He's going to take the gospel to a people that have not heard it. He's going to go like these missionaries that we've had come in in the last few weeks. They're taking the gospel to an area that doesn't have a gospel preaching church on every corner. To people who've heard about Jesus and they've heard in the Roman Catholic Church some things about mass and various things. But they haven't heard the gospel. And so they're going out in the similar way that Paul went out. Paul wanted to preach the good news among the Gentiles. He's going further than that in his description. He's saying all the Gentiles. Not just one place. 
all of them. And he wants not just to preach it. Notice he doesn't really use the word preach. He wants the result of what that will bring, the obedience of faith. He's not just saying, okay, here's my sermon. See you guys later. Go on to the next town. He's doing the the Great Commission. Make disciples by proclaiming the truth. Then what's the rest of the Great Commission? See, we forget. Sometimes we think the Great Commission is just evangelism. It starts with that. Then what? Baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Then what? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded, Jesus says. Paul stayed sometimes for years in a place that he planted a church. Why? The obedience of faith. He wanted to continue teaching them about Jesus. It's not over the day you're saved. You don't just get your ticket to heaven and say, I'll sit on the couch, you Christians go on and do your thing. No, the day you're saved is the day you start your training in the school of Christ. Paul took the good news to other people. Could it be said that we are proclaiming the gospel of God individually? I know we do it in a church service. I know we do it in in some of our Bible studies, but are you... Individually, personally, taking the gospel of God among your people or even other groups that you know of. You don't have to leave your home. You don't have to sell everything like missionaries do necessarily and go around the world. But are you taking the gospel to people that you're among? We have to spread the good news. Paul's giving us an example. It's not the only way to do it. Obviously, we're not apostles, but he's encouraging, I think, through the writing of this letter to to follow in his example. We must spread the good news so that people hear it and be saved. They can't believe without a preacher, he's going to tell us in Romans 10. How can they hear without a preacher? And to take it down to your level, how can they hear without someone telling them? Just sitting down and saying, here is what the Bible says about Jesus. The old Presbyterian uh, pastor, William Plummer, said, Missions ought to find favor with all converted men. The man who has no desire to see all nations brought to a saving acquaintance with Christ does not love either Christ or his neighbor. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't you need to do X, Y, and Z or God's going to throw you out. This is simply we love Jesus so much that we want to tell other people about it. Our neighbor, our friends, and help send people all around the world. The last aspect that he mentions here. So he has been appointed an apostle. He is going for the purpose of obedience of faith. He's going to a called people. He's going out to take the gospel to these people. God will call them. He'll proclaim God will call them in in their hearts. But thirdly, he talks about the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal of Paul's apostleship? For his name's sake. Not Paul. It doesn't say for Paul's namesake, his. It's, it's capital H in my Bible for his, meaning Christ. That's the last person mentioned other than Paul. For Christ's glory. We're talking about that Reformation solo, that usually the last one on the list of five. Soli Deo Gloria. For Christ's glory, for God's glory alone. You see, ultimately it's not about us. Yes, we're blessed with salvation. Praise the Lord. There's no other way we could receive salvation except through Jesus. But ultimately, it's for His glory. We don't end up with pats on the back. We we lived as a sinner until God snapped us up and changed our heart. We don't get the glory. We get to bask in Christ's glory. But it's for His glory. The gospel ultimately is not about you. It's about the glory of God. Yes, we come to Christ. Yes, we receive blessings. But it's about ultimately the glory of God. So many presentations of the gospel today don't include this aspect. That it's about the glory of God. And Paul says right in the beginning, ultimately this is about the glory of God. I'm going to talk about you throughout the letter, he tells the Romans. I'm going to tell you to do certain things, believe certain things. But ultimately, he always comes back to the glory of God. He ends the letter, we just read the very last verse, with the glory of God. So many people leave this out and focus on you. In fact, there's a famous book out there on how to plant and grow churches. And it's all about surveying the needs of your community, what they want in a church, what they desire in preaching, and then just reproducing that. It's a perfect marketing model. That's what you do in marketing, right? 
What do my customers want? Turn it around and sell it to them. And they love it. Well, there's even a church today called You Church. You is in all caps. It's in Switzerland. Thousands of people are shown in the picture here. And there might be some in America named You Church, but if they're not by that name, they believe this. Here's what they believe. It says, God loves you so much. He has a plan for your life. He wants to bless you. He wants a relationship with you. You is always in all caps, all capital letters. Some, of, some truth in that sentence, but there's also some misleading. It says, um, the you church, Jesus came for you in all capitals. He died for you in all capitals. He rose from the dead for you in all capitals. He's now sitting on the throne for you in all capitals. Each of these statements have you very much to the forefront, so much that they name their church, you church. Because they want to draw people in that want to focus on themselves. But Paul says, look, yes, I've been blessed with grace. That's salvation. I've been blessed even with an apostleship gifting. But ultimately, it's for his name's sake. It's why people would die for the faith in church history. Because it wasn't about them ultimately. It was about God. What is the chief end of man? What's the ultimate purpose for mankind? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Everything that God created was for His glory. This shouldn't surprise us that Paul says this. Psalm 19.1 The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Not only is that for creation, but even for the people who come to Him. Isaiah 43 Six, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Everybody should come to Christ. Everybody should believe, and it glorifies God who created us. Paul comes back again and again to this. Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Starts the letter with God's glory. Right in the middle, he makes it clear about God's glory. He ends the letter with God's glory. And of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all receive glory from our salvation. So let's think more deeply about the gospel as we go through Romans. Let's, let's not just say, well, good news. Okay, good news about Christ. And not just good news about Christ, but what does it mean? What does faith and obedience in these things mean? And ultimately, let's tell people it's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. It's what we're gathered here today to celebrate. That Christ was raised from the dead and that we can glorify God by trusting in Him. Can we do that? Amen? Let's pray now. God, thank you so much for the letter to the Romans. We know that Paul has some uh, deep doctrine in store for us. He has quite a bit to say in just a few words. But we know we've got to dig in, Lord. We've got to study. We've got to look at these passages and see how they apply to our life today. I pray that we would take the gospel to those that we love. We would take the gospel to our enemies. We would pray for those that hate us. Lord, we need to be more of a church of evangelism, of sending out missionaries, let us be bold in that. In the name of Jesus, amen.